and welcome back to the 90s Galore podcast. I'm your host, Andy Zaldivar, and we are back for another edition of the 90s Galore podcast. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, I'm thrilled about tonight's episode. Let me tell you, I want to thank you for being here. I just want to mention that we continue to grow the podcast. And it's crazy because we started out in January of this year. And now it's July. And it's just uh, just moving forward. You know, it's moving along. We're really pleased uh, with this podcast. We have listeners throughout the world. And I'm proud to say thanks to all of you and, and our precious listeners and I just can't say enough, man. I'm really excited. I'm really thankful uh, about the potential for this podcast. Um, so I just wanted to mention that. I, I always like giving out love at the beginning of the podcast, you know, if you haven't noticed. Also, uh, follow 90s Galore. Leave me a voice message on any platform. Subscribe to the 90s podcast on Anchor, Apple podcasts or whatever platform you're on so don't forget that um yeah i always items you know out of out of the way because they are important um so again let's get let's get down to business here we have a very very special guest in the house tonight on a very special very cool exciting topic or band i should say that we're gonna cover and we're gonna feature um, this gentleman has played the drums since 1988. He's uh, been in all, uh, multiple bands throughout his life. Um, drummer, I should say, right? I, I, I mentioned that you're a drummer. Um, finally, we got a musician, a real musician on the 90s Galore podcast. And I'm excited about this. Um, good friend of mine, Jerry Feldman, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for that introduction. <clears throat> of course, man. No, no. No, thank you for being here, man. And I, like, um, I know you're a busy man. I know you, you've got things going on, and um, so we're excited about having you. And we've been talking about this for a while. Yeah, we have. Huh? Finally, we <laughs> <laughs> finally we get to we get to uh, make it a reality. And um, I'm excited, man. I'm excited. And um, I know you have a pretty cool musical background in and of itself, Jerry. And um, you've done shows. You performed. You've recorded done a little bit, yeah. Done, uh, done some time behind the drums for uh-huh. sure. Definitely, Dave. Can you tell? Um, I was going to ask you if you could share. You know, some of uh, I know you, you recorded with five bands. You, I think you said. Yeah, right? I mean, let's see. Like since the time I was what fourteen, fifteen until now, which is in my forties. So, yeah, I would oh, wow. say five bands. I've recorded like legit demos, EPs, albums. Did shows throughout. Utah, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Colorado, California, whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, a lot of other projects with other band members, some of which have went on to some fame and prominence. Like in Simi Valley, where we are, there's a band called Strung Out that tours the world. They've been around 25 years. And I was in a band with the bass player of Strung Out back in the mid-90s. And at that time, he was playing guitar. So him and I had a band. Uh-huh. He played guitar. And I remember the moment, you know, a few years into our band where he got the call up. It's like being called from the minors to the majors saying, hey, you know, Strung Out's looking for a bass player. So I'm going to switch instruments and I hope you guys the best. And wow, <laughs> I mean, we, we <laughs> saw him at concerts and, you know, we got to, of course, get thank yous on the albums you know he thanked us on his next album as hey you know these guys were my friends and whatever but yeah that happened a couple That's times cool. which it's kind of a bummer but at the same time you're stoked for your friends absolutely absolutely and you mentioned that before uh we, we, we've talked i we talked about uh, strung out and um and, and you know in the past and definitely uh remember those conversations man and um what what was the most so would you say strung out is probably the most success you saw as as a musician or, um, or, or as a part of a band? Well, at least bands that I were connected to. I mean, there's another Simi Valley band called Pulley. I played with the bass player uh-huh. of that band, and their singer at one point was well, it still is actually Scott Radinsky, the former Major League Baseball player and Dodgers pitcher. <clears throat> so. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, that sounds familiar. Scott. Yeah, Scott. He's he owned Skate Lab here in Simi Valley for twenty years, an indoor skate park. So, 
Yeah, I was at. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I, I played with this guy Tyler Rebbe, who actually went on to play in Pulley for a while there too. So that was just another instance of hey, another friend of ours is making it to the big time. But you know, I'm glad we were able <laughs> to help him to get show. there. Yeah. And, yeah, that's um, cool. That's, and, you that's know, a... and for me, my biggest moment was probably in '97. I was playing in a band in Malibu called Phoebe, and we were actually given the opportunity to open up for Motley Crue at the San Diego Sports Arena for a one-night-only show. Really? What year was that? '97. Oh, nice. So that, and it wasn't Motley Crue's best album. It wasn't their best uh-huh. era, I would say, but. It was still a great opportunity. We had a lot of fun. We recorded uh, an EP right after that and, you know, kind of fizzled from there. Hey, man, that's <laughs> definitely. Hey, but that's pretty, hey, man, not many people can say that, you know. Yeah. You opened up for Motley Crue, and uh, regardless of what era it was, you know, that's that's pretty cool, man. That's, and, um, well, yeah, man, that's, that, I like your story, Jerry. And um, we speaking of bands, right? The band we got on tap for tonight, very interesting band, and uh, and as you know, Jerry, this this particular band is one of those that when you hear them, you immediately know who who it is, you know, yeah, because of that unique sound, that distinctive uh, sound, the voice, the everything, right, the guitar, the the drums, and yeah, big influence. Of course, I'm talking big the, influence for me, absolutely. Yeah, I and mean, that's that's like, exactly why. You know, I, I um, wanted to have you on because you, you got some pretty good insight on this band. And the band I'm talking about, without further ado, is none other than Tool, ladies and gentlemen. And they were formed in 1990 in um, Los Angeles, California, by four immensely talented musicians, of course. And so, Jerry, when, when did you get first get into Tool? I mean, when, when did you really get to know them and... Well, actually, to, um, it was get into it. It's probably '92. So, if you remember back to like '91, '92, you had uh, like Rage Against the Machine kind of came out first. So, all these Rollins band, all these LA hardcore bands were kind of making a new yeah. scene, a, a new sound. And I remember hearing Tool like during the Opiate uh, EP. And right. what struck me right away, of course, Maynard's vocals because the scream is just like nothing you ever heard before. But it was the double bass as a drummer with Danny Carey and his double bass patterns. That's what I instantly locked in on because at first listen, because the vocals were kind of clean, the music was heavy, but not crunchy like Metallica. You didn't think they were a metal band. I didn't get the metal band vibe. You could tell they kind of had a a West Coast kind of grunge sound, I guess. But when Uh you heard that double bass, you're like, well, wait a minute. That's, That's metal. That's like Pantera or something. But then it went from the oh, double bass right. right back to the swoony guitar and the and the kind of you know melodic vocals and it was it was awesome I mean, like nothing I ever heard anyway at the time and I was hooked. Right, right. And, and so you mentioned the the double bass and I, I really like that because it's it's you're getting technical there, right? As, as far as um... yes. So if you could uh, kind of elaborate a little bit, Jerry, on, on what's the double bass? Is that, I know that's a kind so, of a technical thing. Yeah, so double bass drumming is basically syncopating your left and right foot back and forth into like a steady pattern. And mm-hmm. you could double the snare hits to make the beat like twice as fast. Or you can kind of keep your snare hits like a regular 4-4 kind of pattern, but by syncopating your feet back and forth almost like you're you know dancing in place or something that gives a real kind of thunderous bottom end on your drumming and a lot of the danny carey stuff i mean he'll like double his snare hit sometimes to to speed up the beat but a lot of times he'll just do that double bass thrust on certain parts and uh Uh wow for me it was just amazing because here's a guy who's not really in a metal band but it's got the metal band kind of aesthetic to his playing and, but very finesse, mm. very skillful and almost like, you know, Neil Pert from Rush, you know, big drum fills, lots of cool snare patterns and, uh, and menacing double bass. So 
I really, that's what I loved about Tool was just very adventurous with the music, but very aggressive. And also, of course, very sweet at times with the vocals. So, yeah, yeah, and I can appreciate the your insight there, Jerry. That's uh, so. Ba- and so, to sum it up, I think it sounds like it's a very. Um, is it difficult to uh, play that double bass or that technique? Is it difficult? I think from like because I used to, you know, be in that band I was playing in in uh, Malibu, Phoebe. We used to cover a couple of tool songs and yes uh, what i would struggle with when i try to do danny carey songs is kind of the double bass into a big fill and then kind of back into a halftime mm-hmm. beat and it's just hard to kind of emulate that because tool isn't gonna play hardcore and fast the whole song they never do you know they'll always kind of ease back halfway yeah. through the song they'll take it down they'll kind of lower the dynamics Maynard will sing something a little softer and then they'll kind of swell up to another big crescendo part. But yeah, I mean, that's what you have to learn if you're going to try to play tool is it's, you have to have good dynamics of loud and quiet and loud and aggressive. Unlike punk or metal, you could just be aggressive the whole time. And that's the whole song. Yeah. You don't have to worry about dynamics, but tool is all about that. So that's why you're, you know, most awesome. metal guys love them. Most punk, you know, musicians love Tool. It's it's pretty universal. And I love how you uh, describe all of that, man. All those technicalities and stuff that I have no clue <laughs> about. And uh, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, and, and and so you got into them in '92, and and I, you think that double bass is what really makes their sound um so unique so identifiable or, or is it something else or, or what what do you think it is can you narrow it down well i mean to what, what makes it in 92 i was just a lad you know high school kid so of course the music being aggressive and fast i loved but if you listen to his lyrics i mean he'll throw a lot of f-bombs in there or he'll throw some some crazy lyrics describing a, a drugged out situation but at the same time, there's a lot of melody in what Maynard sings and how he, his vocal mm-hmm. expressions are. So for me, it was oh, the yeah. melodic sense that he had that he was a screamer, but he's also kind of like, I don't know, almost like kind of like the hairband guys in a way. He could sing those soft, pretty notes when he wanted to, but then he can throw that out and just go straight aggression when he wanted to and the lyrics matched that beautifully and i think everything it was the complete package what you'd want out of a singer you know what you want as a a band that you are so happy to discover like yeah this is the best new band i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> so so you think he, had, he sounds like he had a lot of range or has a lot of range as a as a vocalist oh yeah for sure yeah, and uh, yeah, you you, see, you you listen, you hear Tool, and it's wow, right away, you know, wow, that's that's uh, Maynard James Keenan, that's Tool, you know, and um, yeah, nobody sounds like him, and like I like how you describe that, man, because yeah, he, he he can be hard, he can be aggressive, but yet, like you know, like you said, melodic or harmonious, right? With the, yeah, a lot of melody and, and harmony, that's, that's, and and the thing too, it's mm-hmm. like you know, back in the early '90s, if you remember. There's no internet. If you wanted to see what yeah. somebody looked like, you only could hope <laughs> that there's pictures of them in the album or maybe like there's a music magazine that has pictures. You never knew. We never knew what any of these guys exactly. looked like. So right. <laughs> you had to watch. You had to go see them live. You had to go to the shows. And that was the craziest thing for me when I finally saw Tools. Like, just, you know, Maynard had like a mohawk. And like a, a mohawk and a mullet. Mm. <laughs> it was like a combination yeah. mohawk mullet. It was the craziest hairstyle ever. <laughs> and he um, was a little guy. He was always like shirtless. And he had this weird crouch kind of posture where he would like kind of curl his back and kind of look like almost like a golem character when he would sing. But this little like like... kind of golemy guy with this mullet mohawk would scream and belt this range and, and this volume that you would never in a million years think a guy that size could do so when i first saw wow. i first saw him live 
It was actually Lollapalooza 93, and it was in Salt Lake City. Uh-huh. It was in Utah. And um, they were on the small stage. And it was amazing to see them up close and, and just to see what they finally looked Very like. Cool. And then later that year, I went to L.A. to visit some friends. And I went and saw Lollapalooza mm-hmm. in L.A. And then they had graduated from the small stage to the big stage all on the same tour. And that was because of the song Sober. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know Sober. Huh? Yep. And that was in Utah. Yeah, well, I lived in Utah for my high school years. So a lot of my early bands yeah. and recording. And and the thing about living in Utah, it's, yeah, of course, it's smaller town. It's not quite like living in the city. But at the same time, you're much more starved for culture and for music. So when you ever, whenever yeah. it comes around, it's that much more precious like if you find something mm-hmm. like a tool or a smashing pumpkins it means all that much more because you don't have easy access to that good music so you cherish it and you play it over and over and you read all the liner notes and the records and in the cd and and you really you know want to know everything about the music so that's kind of how tool was it's so rare to find a band like that there and whenever we heard they were playing that's when we were the first one there to go see them yeah, you really appreciate that type of thing when it, you know that that type of musician or band whenever they come around, you just you're on it right away. And uh, but yeah, they have such a cool story, you know, Tool, and even their name is interesting. That lead singer, you know, Maynard James Keenan was quoted as saying, uh, "We are your tool. We use us as a catalyst to whatever it is you you need to find out or whatever it is you're trying to achieve." And uh, man, I just like his honesty in that statement. You know, I like his honesty and yeah, he's you know, an <laughs> interesting guy for sure. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, you know, he just yeah, he uses us as a vehicle, man. We're we're here. We're you know, we're here to help you or whatever you want to do. Uh, but I think that's just kind of a humbling and you know honest statement. And um, I like how deliberate he is. You know, again, hey, use us. You know, um, so Jerry, what what exactly? And you've already kind of touched on it. You know, why did you get into Tool? I mean, why Tool? I think it's just when you're young, when you're impressionable, everything's new. You know. Yeah. I, I discovered the Beatles and the Doors and older music because it was new to me. I never heard it before, and it had huge impressions on me. And then Black Flag and Slayer and dead Kennedys that was all new oh, wow. and I love that because I never heard it before so when tool came out it wasn't it was really new because it's not like an older generation could pass it down to you like they could with the Beatles or Led Zeppelin with tool it became you know not only was it a great band great music but it was our generation's find you know mm-hmm. we found them because there was no one to pass the torch of listen to this great band this was a right. great band that was happening now. So, yeah. Yeah. Was, so they, the, yeah. Go ahead. It's just the aggressive nature, you know, of the band and the melody and everything about them was uh, easily something that any music fan could gravitate towards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for me, you know, Tool is a, it's a personal 90s anthem, man. I, I mean, I, I hear a song from... Um, you know, and right away, man, I'm back in the 90s. I'm, I'm takes me back, and it just like really, really resonates. You know, 90s for me. You know, it really <laughs> does, man. I just, I just, I just go back, and like you mentioned, sober earlier. Or, you know, Stink Fist, and you know uh, all these songs, man. And right away, it's like, um, it, it's just you know, you, you go back in time, and. uh and again, again, that's the sound, man. That's the sound, and and I think a lot of bands, man. After Tool came out, '92, uh, obviously, you know, I think naturally uh, there's gonna be a lot of bands trying to emulate that their sound, right? I mean, yeah, they're so influential, so amazing, and that, that goes for anything, right? I mean, uh, I think you know what they did with Rage Against the Machine is like they single-handedly influenced the new metal scene from like the late nineties to the early two thousands, because uh-huh. when tool came out and rage against the machine came out, it was still the heyday of grunge and they don't sound anything like grunge bands 
The only band oh. that Tool sounds like, or at least has a similar kind of sound, is like the Melvins, that are also a Seattle mm-hmm. band that worked with Kurt Cobain, and and they have crossover with the Nirvana and all that. But other than that, there's no early '90s bands that sound like Tool. Tool was just too new, too uh-huh. revolutionary. There's no love songs. There's no, you know, <laughs> soft songs. There's no ballads. So I think it took almost six, seven years before other bands took what Tool did and infused yeah. that into what became the new metal music, you know, like mm-hmm. your Godsmack or Chevelle or, you know, all right. these late nineties bands that were just kind of ripping off the early nineties stuff, Limp Biscuit, <laughs> and they just called it new metal because they didn't know what else to call it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned the Melvins. If I'm not mistaken, the Melvins are one of their, um, They've mentioned the Melvins uh, as one of their influences, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the Melvins are, are you... like mid-80s, but no one heard any of their albums until like, I'd say the early 90s, because they were just so out there and so different. And then Kurt Cobain was mentioning them, and Dave Grohl would wear Melvins Army shirts on Headbangers Ball. So a lot uh-huh. of music fans just kind of figured, hey, you know, let's discover, let's go find out who this Melvins band is that, you know, all our contemporary gods are talking about and then <laughs> then they had a couple big albums in the early 90s that at least were on warner brothers you know they had a major label and got some play but right yeah i mean they're a great band very artsy very garage bandy and defy any kind of label for sure but uh, yeah no that's that's awesome and but i think as far as tools concerned um the melvins i think are one of their influences right yeah, I think, I mean, ultimately, when it comes to Tool, they, because each one of them come from different backgrounds, and mm-hmm. none of them are really from L.A. If you look at everyone's background, they're, yeah. they're from, like, the Midwest, or I think Maynard's from, like, he went to, like, Michigan. West Point in South Carolina or something. Yeah, or, uh-huh. So they came, basically, Adam Jones came here to do uh, art production in movies and, like, commercials. And he's like right. an art student. So he came to California to make it big in the movie biz. And Maynard, yeah. I think, came to make it big in music. And they were lucky enough to cross paths and be able to share their talent with each other. But, yeah. And, and yeah, Jerry, that's a per- you're doing my job, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, you... no, I think uh, that's a perfect, um, you know, we'll lead right into that. And I think it's pretty cool. How they, you know, they all converge in Los Angeles, man. And good story again, man. And, you know, like you just mentioned, you know, they all came to LA for, I think um, for the most part, different reasons. Right. And, and um, one thing led to another and um, the, you know, so we have the original lineup. It consisted of um, Maynard James Keenan on vocals, Danny Carey, uh, on drums, we've already mentioned these guys, Adam Jones on guitar. Uh, the original uh, bassist, right? Paul, Paul D'Amour? Paul D'Amour. D'Amour. I screwed that up, huh? Yeah. And he was replaced by Justin Chan- Chancellor. Yeah, he's a British um, guy. Yeah. They, uh-huh. He's like... Why, why did he leave? Yeah, okay, so Paul D'Amour, he was on Opiate and Undertow. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like one of those things. I think uh, if you look at some of Tool's history with their record company, they never had a good record deal. They were bounced around between Zoo Entertainment, some defunct record yes. company that no one's ever heard of, and then to BMG. <laughs> and there was all kind of dispute as far as like their ownership of their masters and the distribution yeah. of their and promotion of their albums. So they never had a good record deal. They never had good distribution. They pretty much rose to the top on their own. They didn't have anyone wow. pushing them because they wouldn't appear in their videos. So no one knew what they looked like. Oh. They, there's no real pictures of them that isn't obscured or distorted on their albums. So they weren't pretty boys that were going to make it because they had a good look and they didn't have a good record company. So I think Paul Moore left because he was just sick of not having like a solid record deal that he could bank on and the other dudes mm-hmm. not wanting to record because they couldn't you know get the record company to agree on who's going to pay for 
you know, the next record. So he split and then they got Justin Chancellor. And then that's when they recorded Anima, Anima. Uh, Anima? Anima. It, yeah, I've heard it pronounced a thousand ways. Is, but is it, I, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I looked it up. I, I think I'm, you know, pronouncing it the way it's supposed to. Anima. Anima, yeah. Uh, but, so that, you know. That's when, uh, when and, and Paul Dumar had a, a really cool, uh, like kind of solo cover record called The Replacements and mm. A Replicants. I can't remember one of the two of those, but but he uh, recorded a really cool kind of cover album after finishing Undertow, but then he just kind of disappeared, you know, he disappeared. Wow. But The he, Replicants, yes. Jerry. Replicants, that's right. But he's always going to be best remembered for that awesome intro bass lick for Sober. Oh yeah, that's yeah. all Paul Dumore. That's all his idea. That's Dumour. that's a great way to, I don't know, at least leave some sort of legacy as a monster bass riff to start a great song. Right, of course, of course, and that's that's a huge song, man. You know, uh, sober and so you mentioned that their first EP, Opiate, right, and uh, released in May of 1992, uh, co-produced by Steve. Hans Jin of Minor Threat. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't know sure. that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there's some trivia for you. And uh, he, yeah, he he was he um, co-produced it. And um, again, 1992. So they, yeah, they they were formed in '90, and right away, you know, um, in spite of their, you know, their issues with uh, record companies and and what have you. You know, they were still able to record a, a nine, I think it's a, I want to say eight demo, I'm sorry, eight song EP or nine song EP. Uh, I think the first one, okay, so yeah, it had eight songs, but if you listen and let the CD play, I don't know about oh. the tape, but you have to let yes. the CD play, you'll get this really strange bonus track that sounds yes. like The Doors, The End. And it uh -huh. has like really strange cryptic lyrics about Maynard talking about a friend who takes acid and did something really <laughs> bad on the curtains. And just like uh -huh. it, there's really kind of, I don't know, psychedelic lyrics there. But there's this weird part where the song just kind of hear you hear this big drum and he just starts singing Satan over and over. He just huh. sings Satan, Satan. It's really bizarre. And when I first heard it, I was a little like, what the hell's wrong with these guys? But after a while, you realize it's just art rock. It's just him being artsy or trying uh -huh. to be controversial. But yeah, I mean, you know, and it's, it's yeah. Sorry, Jerry, go ahead. I was going to say, you never heard that really on any other albums. I mean, you heard bonus tracks, but not like that. <laughs> not like that. Right. <laughs> the hidden song, they call it. And it's called yeah. The Gaping. Uh, well, it's called the Gaping Lotus Experience, and it starts at six minutes. Uh, I'm sorry, six and six minutes and ten seconds after, um, of, you know, after fifty seconds of silence. Oh, I didn't even know it had a That's, name. That's crazy. Yeah, man, it's, it's they call it the Gaping Lotus Experience, and again, you know, it starts at six ten um, after the silence after the, after the last song, Opiate. Uh huh. Uh, the, the title track so yeah that's, that's funny you bring that up yeah if you, you know, ever hidden song. listen to like the whole the whole song and the lyrics at the end you got to check it out it's it's quite bizarre <laughs> i'm gonna check that out man yeah um hey so opian it's gone sir it's been certified platinum by the way really and uh, yeah it's i mean it's sold over a million copies and to date and uh do you think Jerry, do you think this was the, the this EP was the catalyst for putting Tool on the map, or do you think it was Undertow? I think it was a great start. I mean, there's a couple live uh -huh. tracks on the first EP that are really fun and really cool. Uh, one of them actually appeared on Undertow. So I, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. it, it definitely defined their sound and put them on the map. And actually, sure. what's funny, I heard later another EP that was even before Opiate that had most of the Opiate songs and a few Undertow songs. And one of them was an early version of Sober. 
So they had had some of the undertow songs written even at the time of uh, opiate. They just wanted to do something cheap and quick. That's probably what opiate was for. And then once they finished that, they knew they were going to go right into a full length album. They had some of the songs Mm -hmm. already written and that ultimately I think undertow is their masterpiece. You think that's the one, huh? Uh, um, which, by the way, it's uh, released in April 6th, 1993, you know, and their first single was uh, the aforementioned uh, Sober, right? Yeah. And, um, been certified double platinum, you know, ser- selling over 2 million copies. Peaked at number one on the Billboard US Heat Seekers chart. Um, I think it's safe to say that with is this your favorite album, Jay? Uh, you know, for me, I guess just being, you know, 18 years old at the time, very impressionable. Waiting so, you know, anticipatory for that album, like just knowing it was going to be great, expecting it to be great, and, and not being disappointed when it came mm-hmm. out. Yeah, for me, that was like the high watermark. Not that uh-huh. the uh, Anima, Anima, not that that was a bad album. It just, I noticed from that album and then all subsequent albums, they started to lengthen their songs. They kind of made them a little more jam bandy, more solos, more kind of noodling with guitar and drums. And they kind of Mm. lost some of the edge that they had in their earlier stuff. And Undertow Mm. still had that edge. The songs were a little heavier, a little shorter, a little more aggressive and constructed, I would say more efficiently. And then as they, like I say, as the later albums come, it, I don't see that same kind of focus that they had in the earlier stuff. But, you know, some people like the later stuff more and, and that's fine. I, I still like the later stuff a lot, but Undertow had it all. You know, it's a full length album with the heavier aggressive songs and still some really, uh, really well-written stuff too, so. Right, right. And um, Prison Sex, you know, controversial song released in 1993. Also, you know, um, yeah, it had some controversy. I guess the song talks about uh, child abuse, you know, and so it, it ruffled some feathers. Yeah, you know, I don't so. think it got any radio play, but no, uh, Headbangers Ball, I'm sure, played it quite a bit, and, and certain metal stations did. But oh yeah, I love that song. The riff, the riff in it is great. It's the drumming, everything, the lyrics. Oh yeah, great song. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And again, um, but yeah, the, the, to- label... the topic isn't, isn't going to, not many people are going to be singing that, you know, at a no. campfire. You know? no. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. And um, so, yeah, uh, released uh, under the label Zoo, like you mentioned earlier. And uh, so they, they their, their second studio album, moving on, we mentioned Anima. Enema, uh, yeah, was dedicated. Yeah, it was dedicated to. I don't know if you're familiar with this about tool, but they had um, some type of connection with the comedian Bill Hicks, uh, big '90s, early '90s, uh, which they dedicated Anima to. Uh, I find that interesting. Uh, they they tool claimed that the band and Hicks uh, shared uh, resonating, con- uh, similar concepts. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I'm. I'm familiar with Bill Hicks. He's a funny guy. Very uh, controversial. Died too young. Um, yeah, yeah. Ba- basically, had no love for organized religion or corporations, and and was one of these guys that was just kind of like an artist and a contrarian at the same time, and a true rebel. And I think Maynard had mentioned that they used to do some shows together, or. I think Maynard saw his act and had Bill Hicks open up a few times for Tool while they're on tour. They shared similar ideals. So when Bill Hicks died, oh. as young as he did, I think Maynard yeah. wanted to tribute him as best he could. And uh, and I think that album is a great tribute to him. There's even a picture of him. If you yes. open up the album cover, there's like a, a painting of him. That's kind of a strange painting, but but at least it's their way of eulogizing him. And in fact... My favorite song on the album is the song Eulogy, which is all about Bill Hicks. Oh, nice touch there. Yeah. 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 And um, 
Yeah, I just found that interesting that uh, there, there had to be some kind of, you know, a connection and like you just summed it up beautifully. Uh, they, they shared those, those the same ideals, you know, a, you know, um, anti-corporate, you know, anti-corporation establishment, you know, um, kind of avant-garde, you know. Um, so that, that's kind of a, that's kind of cool, man. And I've, I've seen some of, I'm very familiar with some of Bill Hicks's comedy, some of his stand-up. not a lot of it, but some, and he was funny as hell, man. And, uh, that's kind of, uh, I'm going to go back and look at some more of his stuff. Yeah, man. YouTube, YouTube the hell out of him. He's great. He says, you know, very funny, awesome things. The, and, uh-huh. and the interesting thing about him too, you can tell he's like an early nineties guy because he's from Texas and he looks like Garth Brooks. You know, he's got like the, the bad mullet. He's got like the trench yeah. coat, like cowboy boots. He looks like a hick. It's funny his name is Hicks because he resembles a hick. But once you hear him talk and he goes into his, you know, his diatribe and his monologues about uh-huh. hypocrisy, then you forget the way he looks and you just appreciate the genius that he is. Yeah, of course, man. Of course. And that's... um so anyways, that, that's pretty cool, man. And that, so they gave him a nod and um, rightfully so and deservedly so. So they, they won three Grammys, man. They won three Grammys, you know, Skizz that album, album 10,000 Days. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, to, total, a, a grand total. They won, uh, they won one for um, Anima and then the song uh, Schism. Okay. That's, that was on 10, the later album, days. right? Yeah, those okay. are later. Yeah, got right, it. Right, but just I just wanted to mention there that they won. Um, you know, they won. They've had some uh, notoriety, man. They won. You know, best metal performance for Anima, won a Grammy. Schism in two thousand one, which is a different album, of course. I think it's Lateral Lateralis. Lateralis, yeah. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? It's good. Your guess is as good as mine. I used to say lateralist. I don't know. I, yeah, I think your sounds better, man. I think they make they make up these words, you know. Yeah, interesting, man. It, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, are you familiar with the band uh, Mars Volta? Yeah, yeah, they're great. Yeah, these are a lot they're of great, Latin, right? like weird Latin words. Like, are you not sure if you know if they're <laughs> real words or, or what's going on? But uh, very interesting to say the least, of course. And uh, they also won, uh, yeah, for 10,000 Days, Best Recording Package. Uh, so anyways, they won oh, yeah. three yeah. Gra- if Grammys. You, on, um, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but on 10,000 no, no, no. Days, if you hold the cover up, I think there was like these 3D glasses that they gave you and you can kind of shift the album a little bit and use the glasses and you could see certain objects that you couldn't uh-huh. normally see if you use the glasses. Oh. And there's like a really kind of like expensive, crazy 3D packaging that you'd never seen before. And like most of their albums too, there's very little information about the song, the band, the lyrics, the song titles, but it was more arts, mm. more artsy, like an art project, like Adam Jones right. just going off uh-huh. on his artsy stuff, you know? Yeah, they're very uh, avant-garde, huh? very uh, abstract, you know, very artsy, man. Yeah, like you said, and there's another album in which they used, um, I think it's the one you're, you might be 10,000 days, um, where yeah. they use some, some different type of, um, cover, some kind of texture, uh, on the album cover and it has a particular name and it's, uh, oh, is it coming the, to mind uh, right now. Is it lenticular? Is it the lenticular? That's it. Yeah. Thank you. That's it, man. And, uh, which album was that, um, that they use that lenticular okay so i know at least going back to anima if you go back to anima there's a song i think it's the song anima anima where they talk about california falling into the ocean because of a big earthquake and maynard was kind of obsessed with that concept for a while and he even says in the song that he wants to see California get washed away. He wants to see us all like fall into the ocean right. because he goes on this long diatribe telling people to learn to swim, you know, that learn to swim, learn to swim. And he hates like Scientologists and 
hood gangster <laughs> wannabes. He goes through this long list of people he he's telling that they need to learn to swim. So if you open that album and you take the CD yes. out of the tray, there's a lenticular, um, like, I guess it's an image of California. And if you hold it at one angle, you can see California broken up and kind of underwater. Then if you hold it at oh, another really? angle, California is perfect. So that's his way of showing you if we did have a big earthquake and California did fall into the ocean, this is what it would look like. And you can only really see it with that lenticular design of that insert of the album. Wow. Very cool insight, Jerry. Thank <laughs> you for that, man. It's uh, yeah, yeah no cause worries. I, I'm most familiar, but you know, you're the tool expert, man. And you know, um, so that, that that's cool. So they're always doing stuff like that, man. Just kind of stuff that's out there and, you know, very interesting artsy, you know, stuff. Um, and critic, going back to Anima, I know we're kind of jumping around here. Um, they did well critically. Um, <coughs> excuse me. All music gave it a four point five stars on their scale, um, an A minus from Entertainment Weekly, and four and a half stars by the L A Times as well, man. So, uh, Anima was uh, critically, you know, viewed as pretty highly, you know. Um, so you know their their sophomore effort when you compare it to um, you know, the first album, Undertow, there's, you know, it came back with the second studio album, which is Anima, and it did pretty well, at least critically, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, and I, like you were saying earlier, um, you know, you're, you're, you're expressing your own personal opinions about, uh, Undertow and how, you know, Undertow was the, the, the album for you. Um, so it's kind of interesting how, you know, the, what the so-called experts said, you know, about about the album and how how well it did critically. So I just wanted to mention that, man. But uh, but yeah, Tool, man, they they um, very interesting band. You know, like as we touched on a few things, and uh, so now nowadays, where, where are they at nowadays, Jerry? What, what are they, are they well, still performing? Okay, touring? so it's funny. I went to um, what, I went to this WonderCon, one of these Comic Cons here in LA. Uh, a few months back and I was in like the deep section of, of the convention. That's all the old comics where none of the kids are all the kids <laughs> that go to comic cons and dress up. They go to where either the celebrity booths are or where the shiny toys are or the exclusive Funko pops are. So <laughs> I just happened to be at this convention. And I was in the back where none of the kids are only the old farts are looking at comics. And who do I see? But Adam Jones Digging through comics. What? Are you serious? Uh, King Buzzo from the Melvins was also digging. And they were both looking at the co uh, Torpedo Comics' booth. And Torpedo Comics is owned by the drummer of System of a Down, John DeMolly. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. So it's like all three of these rock stars were in one booth. And if you could only <laughs> count the amount of shows and the amount of you know, concerts they've done and albums they've recorded and albums that they've sold. It would have been, you know, quite a number, but it was crazy to see these three guys. But anyway, I, I didn't talk to Adam. I didn't bother him. He's a very reclusive guy. He just got what he wanted and he left. But I did talk to King Buzzo. He's a cool guy. He was there. Uh -huh. He was very friendly. Uh -huh. But um, from, what cool. I, from what I understood and, and kind of King Buzzo like clarified this, that tool is working on an album I, th I think it's done i don't think it's been released but it's done and they're touring right now so you can catch them live in certain parts i don't know where they are in america but they're doing i think in the summer like most american bands that are kind of legacy bands from the 90s or 80s they do big european festival shows uh -huh. where they'll play in weird festivals in europe in front of tens of thousands of people and I, I think that's what Tool's doing right now. So when they finish those summer European festival shows, they'll probably come back to the States, do their regular tour. And hopefully the album will come out because it's been a long time coming. It, and then it's supposed to be released. There's a date for release, uh, August 30th, uh, this year, 2019. Okay. Uh, they're supposed to release another studio album. So... I'm hoping that's true. Hoping that uh, comes to fruition, because that's going to be yeah, interesting. I'm sure it you know, will. I know what? that they've been they've been working together separately, like they have separate studios. Because 
Maynard lives in Arizona. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. With his vineyard, he's got a vineyard. Right. I heard about that. So so when the California Falls, you know, when we become beachfront property, he, he won't have to worry about it, right? It's funny. That's, <laughs> or actually he'll have that's part of the reason he lives property. in Arizona. He really believes that. That's, that's why he's we'll in be Arizona. Because he really believes that some earthquake will wipe out California and he can have beachfront property in Arizona with his vineyard. So there's a lot of... I'd rather be on an island, though. Right, right, but I think it's <laughs> no, cheap, ahead, and he loves it, and and yeah. he, you can actually taste his wine. A, a buddy of mine at work got a bottle of it. He it's named cool, one man. of the bottles, I think Judith, after his mom. Right. So, and that's yeah. also a a, a perfect circle a song. song too. Yeah. Well, yeah, perfect circle, which he, by the way, is his side project, right? And, and um, so, yeah, tool man. They've done so much, man. We we could sit here all night and, um, but yeah, I, I I don't know if if you were familiar, Jerry. August thirtieth is the date for okay. the next album, and like I said, I hope that comes to comes true. And because it's been thirteen, fourteen years since they did, uh, you know, ten thousand days. I think it's been quite a while. Yeah, I mean, usually they'll go ten years, but I don't think they've ever gone beyond ten years. So this is really unusual for them, but they have done yeah. shows throughout the year. So it's not like they're totally inactive. They just, you know, I think Maynard is very much in demand. He does what he wants. Perfect Circle, mm-hmm. I know, released an album recently and also toured quite extensively. Um, yeah. Honestly, I heard the Perfect Circle album. It's not very good. The newest <laughs> one. It just, uh, it just really isn't, and it's a really disappointment because I wanted it to be good. I mean, I like Tool a lot better, but I like anything uh, Maynard does. But I think the last album they did didn't really sell well, and the shows weren't as big of a turnout as they hoped, and it took a lot of time for Maynard to kind of complete that with those guys. And every time mm-hmm. he does, he's got to put Tool on hold. You know, he can't do both. Yeah. So. Yeah. It- Right. And did did you like their first album, Perfect Circle? Yeah, I think the first album's great. That's that is a masterpiece. There's like three or four wow. songs that I think are great. I mean, in comparison to Tool, it's much more commercial sounding. It's much mm-hmm. more oh yeah, radio friendly. I I like the drummer a lot, but he's a, he's very safe, you know, he doesn't really do too much exploratory stuff like Danny Carey. He's much more technically savvy. Um uh-huh. But I like it. It's not, um, it, you know, if I never heard Tool and all I heard was a Perfect Circle, I probably wouldn't have been as much a fan. You know, mm-hmm. like I went into Perfect mm-hmm. Circle knowing I was going to like it because it was Maynard. But because it yeah. does have a kind of standard sound with a lot of bands of that time, I don't think it yeah. stands out as anything all that unique or, or all that special. It's just special because of his vocals and stuff. But I think musically, it's not that unique. Whereas Tool is very different and unique and progressive. Oh. You know, I uh-huh. think a lot of Tool stuff sounds abstract, very abstract, not yes. not ordinary at all. As Whereas the Perfect Circle can tend to sound pretty ordinary at times. Yeah, yeah. And, and that perfect, a Perfect Circle, man, they, I mean, you could label them as a super group, right? I mean, they got... James Ihoff from uh, yeah they got him well, now later I don't, he was in, in the Tim Alexander from Primus yeah you know they got some big names on there man a big you know they got awesome musicians go ahead I was just gonna say they got a lot of those dudes later the first incarnation of Perfect Circle was I think Billy Halloway or Halloway he was like the guitar tech for Adam Jones it's Howardell yeah, yeah Howardell yeah that's his, it's all his baby it's all his idea. He wrote all those oh. songs. He put all of it together. He was just right. looking for a singer. And I think Maynard did some scratch vocals for him while he was trying to find a singer. And he couldn't find one. So he just said, Maynard, do you mind singing? So I think he just did it to help out his buddy. And then it became this huge sensation. You know, I don't think anyone banked on it to be as big as it was. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, man. That's, uh, I like the... Those super groups, man, they, they can be pretty interesting, man. Yeah. I mean, um, it definitely worked out. Yeah. Of, of super groups and side projects, it's by far one of the best, if not the best, you know, little side project I've ever heard because 
you know, I like Rage Against the Machine. I like Soundgarden. But Audio Slave, I don't think, is as good as Perfect Circle as a side project, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a bunch of them out there, right? I, another one that comes to mind, uh, Mad Season, um, Alice in Chains. Yep. And, uh, I had that album. A couple guys from Pearl Jam. Yeah, you know, um, that's a good album, man. It's a good album. And, but uh, we'll see what happens, Jerry, when, with Tool coming up here in August, and that's not, not too far away. And, and uh, man, you've really given us a lot of insight, Jerry, and uh, a lot of technical stuff, a lot of um, musical stuff, man. And uh, yeah, you, no worries. You've enlightened it was fun. all of us. <laughs> Yeah, man, you've enriched us. You've enlightened us with your presence, Jerry, and uh, educated us. I want to thank you, man. I want to no again, thank you for taking the time coming up uh, on the podcast. We got to do this again. We got to do this again, and maybe we'll discuss movies or something, or, or I don't know, man, books. I know you're a pretty artsy guy, man. Uh, we should so, do uh, – you haven't done anything on, like, Danzig or anything, right? We can do that. <laughs> no i haven't man that's yeah uh, yeah or Danzig. rage against the machine uh, i was thinking uh yeah rage or you know have you heard of fugazi fugazi absolutely or even yeah, caius so... caius the band that came before <laughs> queens of the stone age oh there you go yep so man there's there's so many things we could go on jerry it's, it's a rabbit hole right it's a rabbit hole, man. <laughs> well you know it's just the era we grew up in if we grew up in the 80s We'd be talking about eighties, you know. If we grew up in the two yeah. thousands, we'd be talking about two thousands bands. It's the nineties. It was our era. Uh, there's a lot of garbage. It's not all good. There's a there's way more crappy bands than there are great bands in the nineties. <laughs> and that's what makes the few bands that are great in the nineties that much more great because there's so much shit that surrounds them, you know. So yeah, absolutely, man, absolutely. But Jerry, again. Thank you, man. We'll do this again. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you also for joining us on the this edition of the 90s Galore podcast. Had a great time. Uh, yeah, featuring me too. Tool, covering Tool. Absolutely, man. And uh, Do not for forget to follow us on Twitter at 90s Galore. Uh, drop me a line, a voice message on whatever platform you're on, ladies and gentlemen. I want to hear from you. Stay, stay connected. Stay close. Until next time, though, we will be back on another edition of the 90s Galore podcast. For Jerry Fellman, I'm your host, Andy Zaldivar, signing off. So take it easy. Take it 